right. Well, I'd like to introduce myself because there's so many new people that I see in the audience today. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Pastor Jade and Pastor Christy are our senior pastors. And if you're wondering where he is, he is in the nursery today scouting out how this whole thing works. So pray for him. Pray for him. Yeah, he's used to four, which is a lot. But he's, there's probably 44 back there. So pray for your pastor. Uh, and if you are new with us, I'd like to just welcome you for now, I believe, the third time, but kind of catch you up to speed that we are in the middle of a series called The Ancient Future Church, and we're talking about the church as the church universal, the church that has always existed and that exists everywhere, that a local church exists and has for all time since the, the day of Pentecost, but also now we are kind of moving into the section where we're talking about the local church and specifically our local church here at Antioch Church. So if you've missed, uh, we've been about eight or nine weeks now in this series, and last week, Pastor Jade turned us a corner to where we're specifically talking now toward us and, and in the direction of membership. So that's where this, this whole thing is headed toward. How do the individuals that come and attend and gather on a Sunday morning take responsibility for the local gathering and for the body of Christ in this local place. So that's the direction, the trajectory that we're headed in. And today I have the privilege of speaking on diversity. And the irony is not lost on me that I am a young white guy in America speaking to you about diversity. And I don't say that really to be funny, I say it because I take it very, very seriously. And I believe that, that diversity can be such, such a, a polarizing issue once you get past the, well, can't we all agree that we should be diverse? Everybody pretty much agrees there. But actually getting different groups of people to interact and to live in fellowship and community is where diversity really becomes hard. And it's a very serious thing in scripture. So uh, I'd like to pray mostly for me, but also for you. So if you would, let's bow our heads together. Lord, I, I sense the weight of how serious this issue is to you. The God who created everything in diversity. God, I pray that this morning we would have open ears and open hearts to hear and to receive, that our minds would be malleable and able to change. I pray that ultimately, though, that this word would go deep into our hearts and affect this community and that you would cause us to become the kingdom people that you have always desired and designed for us to be. So Lord, I pray that you would grace my lips, and I pray that your heart and your message would be what is ultimately communicated today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ is risen. Amen. And it is only because of that that any of what I'm about to say matters, right? And it might still not even matter unless the Holy Spirit moves. But because Christ is risen, I think it is important for us to keep that before us. That this is not a cultural thing that we do to gather on Sunday mornings. We gather as a prophetic witness to the world that Christ is risen. And we believe so much so that Christ has risen and inaugurated his kingdom that we give up the prime time and real estate of Sunday mornings to gather together to sing and to hear the proclamation of the gospel and come to the table all because of Jesus Christ. So today, with all of that said as framework, I'd like to jump into this message. There's a lot, a lot here. And I'll begin by saying that God obviously loves diversity, and diversity reveals beauty. Now, just as a thought, of, a thought experiment, imagine if everything were all the same. So every tree, we're all the same, and every animal, we're all the same. Every human being, we're all the same. Every job, we're all the same. Every church, we're all the same. Yeah, most of you are already sick of this and ready to get out of that thought experiment world. But here is what we so often miss when we think about the diversity of creation that God did nothing out of need and everything out of pure gift. I said this a couple of weeks ago when I preached on worship. 
And if God does everything out of pure gift and nothing out of need, then everything that he does is intentional and not reacting to something else, but because he has ordained it so. So when God creates the heavens and the earth, God is creating out of pure gift and God is making it how God wants it to be. That God is is not confined by some other rules. And when God does something that displays diversity, it's because he wants it to be so. And that uh, there's a lot of conceptual there, but essentially all that matters is we are not all the same because God doesn't want us to be the same. Amen. Right? Can we, can we agree on that? Thank God. We're going to get to some of the, the difficulties of this, but for right now, let's just start on the same page. Amen. So uh, Colossians 1.16 reveals that all was created by and for Christ. Just yet another reference to that God's hand was intimately and intricately involved in the creating of diversity. Just thinking about geography that there are beautiful places like Colorado Springs. Why do we have so many tourists? Because what we have here is unique. The Garden of the Gods is unique. Pikes Peak is beautiful. And if you're from Kansas, you don't have that. (laughs) Tamara said, amen. That's why she moved here, right? And I'm from Florida where we have swamp and we have alligators and manatees and things that we don't have. And this, this keeps going on and on, but it all reveals something about the heart of God that we cannot miss. We cannot think that this is happenstance. We have to stop and recognize that God intentionally created things and human beings to be different because he desired it to be that way. The church also is called to be diverse, yet a united people. And it must be said, I must say this up front, that diversity is not the end goal. Okay, I don't want to oversell this, that getting people in here of both genders and all age groups and as many ethnicities as possible, diversity is not the end goal. A family that God is creating who lives in loving communion with one another and with him is the end goal. But diversity is necessary for that to happen. We cannot be the family that God is calling us to be if we are all the same and we all agree on everything. And if you don't believe me, read your Bible. (laughs) Read anything Paul wrote, okay? So I'll just leave that point there. The kingdom of God is diverse and it began as a project of inclusion. I was thinking this week, there's just so many passages I could have used as, uh, as proof texts, as Dan and I often joke. I have a point I wanna make. What Bible verse can I back it up with? But, but I was thinking just about the, the various texts that reveal this sort of thing to us. And I was thinking just about the message of the day of Pentecost. And I just want you to hear a couple of verses. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And I want to stop right there. I've never seen this or thought about this before, but if there was going to be a miracle in that moment, it could have been anything. It could have been that they all spoke in different languages, but they all heard in Aramaic. But that's not what happened. The miracle was both in the speaking different languages, but also that they all heard in their native tongue. To me, that says something because Pentecost is the birth of the church. That, That if God was not after diversity, he could have just as easily made the miracle that they all heard in the same language. Like get in line, get in conformity with this. But that's not what happened. The church was birthed in diversity and it stayed that way. A matter of fact, it only increasingly became more and more and more diverse. Literally the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, what happens is all of these people, there is an announcement essentially, all of you are now welcome into the people of God. The Jews are not excluded, but they're certainly not the only ones anymore. It begins, the church begins with a statement about God's desiring of diversity in his people. Every local church is called on some level to be a diverse kind of people because of the type of person that we are called to be when we come into Christ. So every local church is called on some level. Now hear me, that a church in rural Kansas 
is not going to be as diverse as a church in Brooklyn, right? So, so there's no unnecessary guilt or expectations. We have to frame this in, in wisdom, but the principle of diversity is to be present in every gathering of believers that calls itself a church. True unity in the body requires an awareness of our differences that allows us to function as one. And the problem is not usually convincing people that diversity is a good thing, but getting the diverse groups in the kingdom to actually interact in true fellowship. This is what Paul, in almost every book, except Ephesians that he writes, is toward this end. It is, okay, conceptually, you all understand that now there are new people coming into this family, this family that was initiated with Abraham. But now the idea is taking on flesh and people from other lang- with other languages, with, other, with jobs. I mean, just think about this, that when Jesus calls his disciples, he doesn't call 12 rabbis, that Jesus calls a zealot and a tax collector. These are two people that despise one another. These are two people that their existence, that their occupation is literally to provoke and eventually eliminate one another. And Jesus calls them to be in the same small, tight-knit group with him for the three years of his ministry. Like this speaks something to us. It has to about God's heart. So in the kingdom, we are called to recognize the differences among us and where we have created systemic injustices, level the playing field by being inclusive and promoting equality. Now, I'm not gonna steal Pastor Jade's thunder because he's speaking on reconciliation next week, but I know that this is the underlying uh, elephant in the room. Now, when we speak about diversity, we have to recognize that the idea of diversity is wonderful, but our propensity as human beings is to group together with like-minded people, like colored people, like socio-demographics. We, we gather in these groups that protect our sovereignty, if you will. They, they protect us. They have our back. We don't have to worry about those people in our groups. And precisely what Jesus does is he comes to those people and speaks provocatively and goes to all the other groups of people, all the outcasts, the women, the lepers, those who are filled with demons, those who are Gentiles. Jesus goes to all the other groups and acts like their best friend. And, and I don't mean acts as in it's fake, but, but Jesus brings them into the family from the get-go. That this is what we are called to do. We are called not to just acknowledge and, and nod our hat to the fact that there are injustices, but the kingdom of God, and specifically the local church, is to be the place that is actively resisting and pushing back and praying as we did this morning, Christian, great job, and and putting our hands to tearing down those walls that divide us. Like, it's not enough just to talk about it. It's not enough for me just to get up here and preach about it. That's an, if this is where it ends, that is not enough. But like I said, I'm meddling because Pastor Jade's going to preach on that next week. <laughs> so the kingdom is the realm of God where humanity can thrive in diversity without division. Okay? So the church is supposed to be the place where diversity exists without division. Because it's very easy for diversity to exist out in culture. But where diversity exists, often division exists. And that is one of the primary uniquenesses of the church, is that when we see our differences, we inquire and we promote and we represent one another, unlike what typically happens in culture. So how do we see this in the Gospels? Let me just run through some examples real quick. So we see the differences in age. Okay, so that's, let's just start with an easy one. Jesus is continually exalting children and the apostles are continually preferring the elderly. We see it throughout. Class, status, Jesus' miracles, think of Legion, blind Bartimaeus, the Roman centurion. Jesus' miracles are primarily toward people in very high and very low socio-demographics. Jesus is making a statement by by bringing healing and reconciliation to people who are ostracized because of their class or status in society. Gender, this is an easy one. Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
right? Mary was chosen and selected as a lowly young woman who was quite literally endowed with the word of God. Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, the genealogy in in, uh, the, the book of Matthew. I mean, Jesus quite clearly was attempting to tear down walls between men and women. Race, read the book of Philemon. I'll just leave that one there. If you read the book of Philemon, you can no longer say that the Bible justifies slavery, which unfortunately people that looked a lot like me did for hundreds and even thousands of years. But if you read the book of Philemon carefully, you will see that Paul is very subtly calling out slavery and cutting it at the root. Theological and political ideologies. Ooh, this is a fun one, right? And I just mentioned, yeah, this is, this is one of the more polarizing ones for us in the church, that we think it's okay, other people of, you know, older, younger, people with, with different ages, uh, of course we want women in the church, of course we need diverse uh, ethnicities in the church, but we really, really, really don't want people with different political ideologies in the church. We don't. And we don't want people with different theologies in the church. We really don't want people that have views of God that threaten our own views of God in the same church as us. Like, I think that is one of the areas that affects probably everyone in the room, political and theological ideologies. And yet, once again, Jesus is always bringing these people together and he is making a statement. Galatians 3.28, we all know the verse, says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Now what he doesn't mean here is that all of your distinctions go away. What he means is the animosity and the hierarchy that your distinctions have given fruit to those things go away. God does not want us to all look and act the same. God just wants us to act and look differently in a way that promotes one another, a way that promotes love and mutual submission. So in each of these groups, Jesus seems to exalt the ones that the Jews had ostracized from the people of God as a manifestation of his father's kingdom. Like think about that, that just about everything Jesus did was an inclusive act of bringing people in that the existing group of people of God, the Jews, would have been shocked by. Like, let that settle in. We, we're so familiar with the Gospels, and we're so familiar with the stories about Jesus and his actions that I think so many times we miss those very important distinctions of just who Jesus is healing and just who Jesus is speaking to and just who Jesus is reconciling. But once again, Pastor Jade's going to touch on that next week. <laughs> True diversity is beautiful and rewarding, but it is uncomfortable. Let's just recognize true diversity, not just people who don't look the same sitting in the same room that never engage and interact with one another, but true diversity is very uncomfortable because it's confrontive in nature that that you are being forced to live with people who have all of these differences and what their differences mean for our lives is what often threatens us. Um, more than just being welcoming and having association between us, true diversity means valuing, hearing, and representing those who are the minority among us. I need to say that again, that true diversity is not just being welcoming and having association with one another. True diversity means valuing, hearing, and representing those who are the minority among us. That is what true diversity is all about. True community, this family that God is building. So living together, God made it so that we need the difference in our community. We are not whole without them. If you remember in the very first message of this series, I spoke kind of framing the whole thing, but I gave a short little list of things that the church is not. And the very, very first one is that the church is not a club or an association. And when everyone is gathered around a shared interest, a shared ideology, a shared culture, that's a club or association. 
that's what those, that's what that is defined as. And the church is called to be something different. It's not that clubs and associations are bad. That those are just friendships. And friendships are wonderful, but friendships are distinct from what this is supposed to be. Of course, there are friends in the room. That, there's nothing wrong with that, and I would highly expect that that would be the case. But I do not expect that everyone in the room would be friends with everyone else in the room. I think that there is, there's something there. So let me, let me keep moving. I don't want to meddle too much. Scott McKnight, in a book called A Fellowship of Difference, has this quote, and he says, me is not one of the most important words in the Bible. You don't get me until you pass through God and people. And if you move in that order, me morphs into we. What a crafty little statement. I'll read it again. Me is not one of the most important words in the Bible. It certainly is in culture, by the way. That's my parenthetical. You don't get me in the Bible until you pass through God and then his people and if you move in that order, me morphs into we. In other words, if you do life as a believer the way that God intends it, then eventually the ways that you now think about yourself, you, you eventually think about the community in those ways. So in the ways that we are so concerned for our individual and personal well-being now, that the more we do this and the more we pursue being a true, authentic community and family of God, that eventually our personal concerns become concerns for the community and concerns for our neighbor. Amen? I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if we can go there, Allegra. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You guys were wondering when I was going to get to the Bible, weren't you? We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read just a handful of verses here. This is a very, very important passage that we've all heard many times. And I'll just begin here, verse 12. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. I just want to pause here and recognize what, what Paul is saying is that in this metaphor, if an ear or a foot or whatever part says, I'm not like the other parts, I don't want to do this anymore, it doesn't matter. Like you don't, you can't cut yourself off, even though there, there are ways that we attempt to cut ourselves off from the community and we attempt to remove ourselves from the body. I think what Paul's getting at here is that you don't control near as much as you think you do. That the most significant things about each and every one of us, we had nothing to do with. Think about that. Who you were born from, what country, what place, locale you were born into, what socio-demographic your family was when you were born, what innate talents and gifts you have, your appearance, the most significant things about each and every one of us, we had nothing to do with. And I think that that is incredibly humbling and important to recognizing that we all have a place in the body and the place that God designed us may not be the place that we want, but really we had nothing to do with it in the first place. Amen? Uh, so let me, let me keep reading. I'm going to skip just a couple of verses here. I'm going to skip down to verse 18. But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
I just lost my place. I need to get a bigger font Bible. Here we go. Verse 23. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Once again, let's push, push pause real quick. Another thing that Paul is saying here is that we don't really know where the value lies that we think we know what's indispensable and we think we know what's valuable, but really we don't because we live in an upside down kingdom. That's the first reason. The things that we tend to value are different and we know that from the story of Samuel and David, but also we are just so unaware of all that God is doing among us. Like it's one thing for me to look up here and and you guys see Jesse playing drums this morning. I use this analogy in our pre-service meeting. Is God using Jesse to play drums? Absolutely. But the mistake that we make is that we automatically jump to the conclusion that that is Jesse's, that's the primary way that God uses Jesse in the body. When, when Jesse's weakness might be the thing that God uses most to strengthen this body. I'm not going to tell you what that weakness is. I'll leave that to Monica. No. <laughs> But we have to take seriously that we don't see all that is happening among us, that we're unaware of the ways that we affect one another. And we, we're filling roles and filling needs as they come available in the body. And we're doing things just like Pastor Jade this morning back in the nursery. But who knows that his greatest contribution to this community might be a child that he touches this morning that turns out to be the next Reinhard Bonnke. I mean, who knows? We all have to take very seriously that God is doing way more than meets the eye. Amen? The individual contributions to the body are for the sake of the body itself, not the other way around. That we don't come to the body to find, primarily to find health for our individual selves. We look to being healthy individuals so that we might more greatly contribute to the body. That's what Paul says over and over in both books in Corinthians and the book of Romans, as we're going to look in just a minute. But we must ask the question, why is it that we need differences and distinctions to ultimately become who God has called us to be? Why is it? So here's just a few. There's a few pragmatic and then one really theological one at the end. First, to challenge our thinking. If we only ever spend time with people that think just like we do, old and young, Republican and Democrat, rural versus urban raised people, then we will never learn to see outside of our little box. Jesus in scripture, oh, here, this is fascinating to me. Walter Brueggemann says that almost all of scripture, with the exception of basically when David and Solomon are kings, all of scripture is written from the perspective of the minority or the underdog. Think about that. Like we live in America, so we assume that that's the posture that scripture was written from. But scripture, other than that small brief period of time when David and Solomon are the kings, pretty much all of scripture is written from the perspective of the underdog, of the minority. That the people of God in the grand scheme of things were always a minority people. So, diversity challenges our thinking. Number two, it forces us to take people and ideas seriously that otherwise we would just simply disregard. That authentic, diverse community forces us to take ideas and groups of people seriously that are easy for us to categorize and disregard. Number three, to expose us to human experiences beyond our own. And I think this is a very serious one for us, that we, we come to the table of every situation in our lives and every situation that we see other people in, and we assume the best thing for them is for them to do what we did when we were in a similar situation. That's just what we assume, because it worked for us, or it didn't work for us, so you definitely shouldn't do that, right? But this forces us to take our experiences seriously. Because even if our experiences on the surface seem to be the same, they're not. None of us should ever say, I know what you're feeling. Because you don't. You don't. None of us. Even if the exact same scenario happened in our lives, you don't know what the other person is feeling. 
And we have to wrestle with that and take that seriously. And living in a diverse community forces that to happen. And then lastly, why do we need differences and distinctions to ultimately become who God has called us to be? This is not the last answer ever. This is just the last one I'm giving you this morning. To reveal something about God. And I don't want to be too specific in putting a fine point on what that is because I think that that list is endless of the things that God creating a diverse planet with diverse people, I think it speaks infinitely about him and his character. It must delight God for us to be different rather than to be the same. And that's essentially all we need to know about that. That it must bring God delight that we are more different than we are the same. The church is the one place where we don't get to select who we associate with. And I think this is one of the the large problems with the American church. Everybody has problems with the American church. Every church has problems in every nation of the world, okay? But one of the problems that we have is that there are so many churches that what naturally happens, like just think about grocery stores, jeans, anything else. When there's tons of options, you get to be more and more selective. And I think that that is inherently problematic in the kingdom of God. That the more select, the more options we have, the more we're gonna choose our preferences. And preferences, there's nothing wrong with having preferences. But sometimes we need to do things we don't want to do. The church, especially the early church, they didn't have these options. The, the early church was forced to live together and to learn reconciliation the hard way. We typically like to not learn it the easy way. And what is that? By going to another church, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a reason to leave and that, there's, that, there, that you should just go to the church that's closest to your house. I'm not, I'm not speaking that. But I am saying it is inherently problematic that we have some 700 options just in one city with every little nuance of the service, every little nuance and posture of every theological ideal can be you know, slightly different. And then we can basically, cafeteria style, pick a church that exactly aligns with us. That's problematic. Ultimately, the church is called to be a prophetic witness to the world. The church is the statement to the world that there is more happening than what you see. That there is a God at work that maybe you can't see his activity right now, but we are witnesses to it. Like I said a minute ago, the fact that 200 and something people gather on the prime time of Sunday morning when there's all kinds of other things that we could be doing hopefully says something. And this is the flip side of, there are 700 something churches in this city that are doing the exact same thing. And that is a prophetic witness to the city of Colorado Springs. It's kind of like a movie trailer. And Revelation 7, 9 is the verse that says every tribe, every tongue, you know, there's a picture of them worshiping around the throne. And notice, once again, there's multiple languages, multiple tribes. It's not this uniformity thing. And that verse shows us that it is still this way in the end. And what happens in the end, the whole idea for the church is for us to model that in as much faithfulness as we can now. So what, really what we are is we're the movie trailer. We know how this thing kind of ends. We don't know all the details. We don't know how everything is going to shake down in the end. There's lots of people who think they do, but let me tell you, they don't. <laughs> but we are called to do what we do know, and that is to be a prophetic witness of reconciliation and of diversity in the kingdom of God. So let's look together. We're going to spend the remaining time that we have in the book of Romans chapter 14. Dusty, if you could mute me for one second, I'm going to take a drink and these people don't want to hear me swallow. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of long, but we're going to read it in stages so before we go into it, just a couple of precursors here. This is the passage that in most of your Bibles is going to be labeled the weak and the strong or something like that. First thing is, what do we mean or what does Paul mean by weak and strong? He doesn't mean weak or strong in fervor, devotion, dedication. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about those who are serious about their faith and those who are not. He's talking about weak in conscience 
in the development of their ideals around their faith, the ramifications of what it is to belong to the people of God. He's saying some people's conscience is very weak and some people's conscience is very strong. So that, that's the first thing. Uh, by the way, I said this before also, everyone reads it and assumes they're the strong ones, right? <laughs> Just like we all read scripture from not the vantage point of the minority, but of the majority. It's kind of that same thing. So while we read this together, why don't we all just play a game? And as we read, act like you're the weak, okay? I'll do the same. I'll act like I'm the weak. Um, so there's two issues that he's addressing here. One is holy days. So these are, he's, he's writing the book of Romans, which is a conglomerate of Jews that have now come into belief of the Messiah, that Christ is the Messiah. And there are also Gentiles in this community and they're learning to live together. And it's in some ways, it's kind of similar to Galatians where it's these people who are trying to figure this thing out, but they have very opposed ideas on holy days. And the other one is food offered to idols. So as we'll see, we get in here and certain ones are very adamant that we still have to keep the holy days and another group of people is adamant that we no longer have to keep them and then same thing for the food offered to idols. And I wanna just lastly before we read, say this passage is not advocating for relativism, that whatever you believe on whatever issue, it doesn't matter. That's not what Paul's saying. Verse one is the key and he speaks about opinions, matters of opinion. And so I just, I don't want you guys to think that I'm getting up here and saying, well, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah and if you don't, it's cool, just come on Sundays and, and we'll, we'll do the thing and it'll all be fine. So let's start. Verse one, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on, and here's the key word, disputable matters. And the NRSV says matters of opinion. And just a side note here, Diversity itself is never what trips us up. It's our opinions about what diversity means for us and our well-being that trips us up, okay? So we don't inherently, gen generally, have a problem with people who are not like us. It's what they're not being like us means for our life that we have a problem. Does that make sense? Amen there? So uh, we're gonna keep moving here. Verse two. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To, who, to his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day, meaning a holy day, more sacred than another, and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so unto the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains also does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Quick interjection here, he's quite clearly saying the most important thing is not what you believe, but how it affects the other people in the community. On these issues, specifically these issues, which are matters of opinion, hear that. Paul is saying, ultimately, there's ways that you can both be fully convinced, Democrats and Republicans, Calvinists and Arminianists, if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it, look it up later. But ultimately, he's saying it's not that what you believe has to line up, but how you act out what you believe has to be for the good of the community. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. So I'm going to skip a few verses ahead. Verse 9, for this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will, we will all stand before God's judgment seat as it is written. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. 
Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So Paul is identifying himself as the strong. I told you we all do that. It's crazy. (laughs) Paul might actually have been one of the strong, but we all do the exact same thing, right? Uh, Verse 15, if your brother, or excuse me, second half of 14, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him, it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Another quick interjection. If your practice of living out your convictions, which Paul very, very clearly says, you should be fully convinced of your convictions. But if the way you live out your convictions causes another brother to stumble, then it is sin. So Paul is not making any statement here about whether it is right or wrong to on which position they take on holy days or for us, how we vote or things like alcohol, things like dancing. If you came from one of my background, um, none of you thought that was funny because none of you came from where I came from. <laughs> but there are these matters of opinion and Paul's saying, frankly, it doesn't matter. What matters is how you live them out, okay? <clears throat> so I'm gonna keep reading just through verse 20. Uh, Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or as the song goes, the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. I want to hone in on this verse. Do not destroy the work of God. I think most of the time we live as if that's not possible. We we live with this idea of fatalism that God is gonna do what God's gonna do and I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. And I know God is gonna do something, but he's so big and powerful that frankly, in the end, I'm just one small person and what I do doesn't really matter. And Paul clearly speaks against that. Paul says the work of God is fragile. Now, what is key is that the minute we destroy something of the work of God, we can never destroy the work of God in its entirety. But the minute God is doing something beautiful and and creating something that is redemptive and, and pointing toward the kingdom and we destroy it, God immediately begins bringing beauty from ashes. God always, but before we can take another breath, God is already working to redeem the things that we destroy. But it is very important that we hear our actions can destroy the work of God. Like that's not an accident that this is in here. The way we live together matters. That when Chris Green was here a couple of weeks ago, he said, God has made it so that his work is inextricably intertwined with the work of the church. God didn't have to do it that way. God could just act sovereignly and do whatever he wants to do. But most of the time, God has chosen to act through broken people. And we have to live with that responsibility. That is, when we come to be a people of the Spirit, the Spirit makes us more responsible for the people around us, not less responsible. So we cannot act as if I'm going to live by what I'm, my convictions, and if you get offended, that's on you. We cannot do that. We cannot live that way. And then, of course, while I'm meddling and I'm wrapping up, the flip side is also true, that we have to learn to be a people who are not offended easily, that we are not offended by things that people are doing, not even around us, but we got wind of it from a fourth party, and now we're offended. Like that, these two things have to come together and meet in the middle, okay? So what do we learn here? I think ultimately it's less about what we believe and more about how what we believe affects the community. I've already said that. The weak and the strong need each other. This is, some, this is the key, this is the crux to the whole message. The weak need the strong to challenge their thinking and provoke them toward maturity in the faith. That, that we're not 
after the kind of club or association that only attracts weak people or strong people. And I'm sad to say that there are too many church models built off of that, off of attracting weak conscience people or strong conscience people, but never forcing them to live in tension with one another. And I think Pastor Jade would agree with me and Pastor Christie that we want this to be such an open place that there's literally no one who is not welcome to come and learn to do life together in this people of God, no matter what their convictions are. Because ultimately, if we trust God enough that over the long haul of being in this thing, God is going to form us into the people he wants us to be, right? And also, the strong need the weak to develop their character because there will always be weak people among us. And weak, remember, it's not weak in fervor, it's not lesser than, it's weak conscience people. People who can't hold certain things together in tension. People whose convictions are very fragile. So this is not a knock if you're going, oh man, I'm a weak person, which is what we're all supposed to be doing for this thought exercise. And lastly, notice Paul doesn't tell them just abstain to avoid conflict. That's, that's the road we like to take. We like to take, I'm just not going to talk about anything that ever, ever, ever could be controversial because I want to avoid conflict. And that's, I think Paul is strategic in everything he does and he doesn't say that because it's easier. We all can acknowledge it's easier to not talk about certain things, to have a church. I mean, we could just preach super bland messages that are never provocative and that never challenge our thinking. And we could, you know, develop certain kinds of life groups that avoid any kind of complicated interactions. And if you've ever been to a life group, you know that that's not how we do things around here. Chris Green said this, I I know I'm quoting him a lot, but he's said a lot on this issue. He says, the weak should seek to become strong, but first the strong must become weak so that the weak can become strong because that is the salvific pattern shown to us by Christ. That the the goal is for us to all grow up into maturity together, which cannot happen if we divide weak and strong, if we divide on issues of opinion in this place. The goal is to all grow up into maturity, but for that to happen, those of us who truly are, if you really believe you are strong, then you must become weak because that is the way of the kingdom. That is the the salvific pattern that Jesus shows us. Amen? So how can we be a people, weak and strong together? Four quick practices. I'm not going to unpack these. I'm just going to kind of spit them out. Practices for living in truly diverse community. Number one, listen and seek to understand. Don't assume that in a group of people, you have more to offer than to receive. I hate that. (laughs) That is hard. That That is so hard. I mean, just that one. If we just stopped and came to the table right now, that is so hard. Do not assume you have more to offer than to receive. Number two, be open to being changed more than seeking to change. Be open to being changed rather than seeking to change. Number three, and I'm to change others is what's implied there. Number three, lay down your ideals of another. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the community itself eventually become destroyers of that very Christian community, even though their personal intentions are ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. That if we have an ideal of a perfect community and what this thing will look like, and we're not willing to lay that down, eventually that ideal will divide us and destroy us. And it doesn't mean that we can't dream about the kingdom of God and what this place will look like. It means that we need to dream such open-ended dreams that the spirit at any time can show us that's a great intention, but I'm doing a different thing, okay? Uh, So if the table attendance would come, I'm gonna wrap up with a, a passage here from 1 Corinthians 11. Oh, no, what is number four? Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you guys. Good students, all of you. I'm surprised Dan didn't catch me on that. Be quick to repent and forgive. 
You shouldn't have missed that one. Thank you. <laughs> be quick to repent and forgive. <laughs> Thank you, Tori. I, I dearly appreciate you. Uh, Elliot, if you would come and play, my friend. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So this is just one, pass, one chapter before what we read a few minutes ago. I want to begin in verse 17. For in the following directives, I have no praise for you. This is how Paul begins. This is going to be an encouraging word, right? For your meetings do more harm than good. Okay, in all seriousness, have we ever considered that it is possible to do church in such a way that it brings more harm than any of the kingdom things that we are supposed to be bringing. Like, I think that there is just this implicit belief that going to church is always better than not. And we want to be the kind of church where that is the case. But Paul tells them, it's better that you not gather if you gather in this way. And we're now gonna try and figure out what that way is. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. So once again, he's saying just because you're taking this juice and this bread, it doesn't inherently mean that this is the Lord's Supper. Because for it to be the Lord's Supper, we have to take it in the way that God requires of us. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Thank God that is not happening here. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. We're going to pause right there and I'll continue as we come forward. In the kingdom of God, class barriers, gender barriers, socioeconomic barriers, race barriers are to be done away with. We are to be a people of distinction without division. That is what God is calling us to be. And this meal is representative if we will let it be that. And if we will let Jesus encounter us in this meal, that we learned last week, I believe it was, that Pastor Jade said, when we come forward, we're making a declaration and a proclamation to the other people in this room that I am a witness to Christ and you can look to my life as an example. That you, as I come forward, I'm, come for, I'm coming forward taking responsibility for my own convictions, but also for your well-being as one member of the community. So if we would, let's stand together.